you can preach love and you can preach all these things for years to reveal who the Father is. You can say one line about something and it sets them all the way back to some form of legalistic, empty, religious expression. And they think, you know, that was too good to be true. Hello, who knows what I'm talking about? Why is legalism our default setting? Why? Because in the garden, the first expression of the new nature was we can fix it. The very first thing, once a new nature came up into Adam, once sin came into the world and it changed who he was, it bent actually the image of God in his heart, it shifted something. The very first thing it does, he says he sowed fig leaves. So the very first thing, before they hid, before they were afraid, they said, we can fix the depravity by ourselves. No, cannot. We cannot. And so the default setting is, I can fix this. And as soon as we hear something with that lens, we jump back on that track. And it's, it doesn't do any good. Who knows that? It doesn't help. Okay, all three of us, that's wonderful. So, <laughs> I want to speak about this morning, and I'm not sure how far we're going to get. Uh, my heart this morning is, oh, Lord, give me wisdom how to say this. I found many people are going to places, churches, preachers. It's like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to live. But it's, you know, we want to teach you how to fish, not just give you a fish. There's a big difference. And my desire is to see people, a people of God raised, a company of people raised that know what it is to fight for what God has given them already. I mean, not fight to earn, to stand on it. Because as much as you can hear good preaching about this kind of thing, as soon as you go home and you pray, that's when you know what you believe. Lord, I'm terrible, Lord, and we do that, you know. And my desire is to see people get set free, and I find we have to go here, because when we see it here, it changes everything. It puts a surety in you. So, we're going to focus on four verses, many others around those, but four verses that are sometimes difficult to understand about this very topic. Number one, in the forgotten power of purity, we're going to switch to the word holiness, but we all secretly know it's purity. It's a little secret. The pursuit of holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 15 says, Pursue peace with all people. That's not easy. So let's go home. We all know that's not fun. And holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. I like that. A bitter person, I remember... I read that years ago, and I had this little image in my head. It was just a vision the Lord gave me. And I actually started to laugh in the service. Because, you know, when someone's bound by bitterness, it's like when a person goes to the pub with you, you know. And, you know, if that person comes, there's going to be trouble. There's, there's, they're going to throw a scene. That's what bitterness does within God's people. It's like if that person comes, there's going to be trouble. Because they're going to find something to be heard about. But it says causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, even that verse, when it says, fall short of the grace of God, some people will read that as, it runs out. And it does not. It does not. Galatians 5 talks about this. Galatians 5, I think it's verse 4. It says, for you have fallen from grace. And again, some people even say that means, you know, you're no longer saved. All these, these lies, and they're lies. It actually means that there's two foundations that you can build your life on. The foundation of grace and the foundation of self-work. 
It's interesting because there were true trees in the garden. And when it says in Galatians that you've fallen from grace, he says, why are you trying to be justified by the law? Why are you trying to be justified by human self-effort? You have fallen from grace, meaning you've gone from one foundation onto the other. And there, there's no joy. There, there's no growth. There, there's no life. None. So stay on this one. And that's exactly what he's talking about here in Hebrews 12. Stay on the foundation that Christ has laid. So when I first got saved, you've heard me share this. In my zeal, in my desire, I, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy when I say this. Now I think, what was... I gave myself one year to stop sinning. And I thought, if we can just get that out the way, then I'm, you know, we just take the world. And my goodness, it was not a fun year. And after about six months, the Lord actually showed me a a picture, which I won't get into. And I suddenly understood, you know, when you understand something by the Spirit, but you cannot yet explain it. He did something in my heart, and I understood. When He raises an issue, He gives me the grace to deal with it. Otherwise, just seek Him. Otherwise, just be with Him. It changed my very, the way I think, it changed me. And I realized that you cannot teach someone to love. You cannot. You cannot command or force a person to love. Now, in the Old Testament, that's what they were under. It wasn't because God was cruel. The Old Testament, the command was, love the Lord your God. But you cannot force a person to love. Otherwise, it's not love. It has to be free. The point was to make people fall to their knees to discover that they couldn't do it without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They needed Christ. That was the point. Which is why when the Pharisees started adding to the law, Jesus didn't like that very much. He said, you've missed the point. It's not about making it easier. It's about it was supposed to be impossible so they could see me. Hello? You cannot teach someone to love. You cannot teach someone to fear God. You cannot instruct someone to fear God. The Bible says that in Isaiah 29. And you cannot teach someone holiness. You cannot teach them into holiness. You just cannot. They are all works of the Spirit of God. They works in a person's heart. You can teach them about holiness. You can teach them about God. You can teach them about love, but you cannot put it inside. In your teaching, we trust that the Holy Spirit jumps on His Word and empowers it into the human heart, but you cannot make that happen. (laughs) We just cannot. It has to be It's through the relationship. So something we saw last week, when the high priest used to go into the tabernacle, I think there's a picture. You see the entrance gate? For those who are sitting right at the back, there's a gate on the lower part of the screen. And they used to go in the entrance gate. What's the first thing they would come to? The brazen altar. What does that stand for? The cross. It stands for the cross. It stands for grace. It stands for the atonement of sin where they would receive blood and then take that blood into the most holy place to experience the presence and the power and the person of God. Then they went to the bronze laver. It's very interesting that if they had blood, if they had the blood, right, for the atonement of sin, like if they had been through the cross, if they've now been saved, okay, we're translating it New Testament. Why the washing? Why do they need a wash? If sin is taken care of by the blood of Christ, by the cross, why wash? They used to wash their hands and their feet. If they didn't, they would die. So I think they did. And the washing, as I said last week, and it's very, very important, but don't let the enemy jump on this, is to cleanse the dust of the world. It's actually to wash the stickiness of the world off of you. It's not even a sin issue. 
It's just, you know, when we feel like we're, there's no awareness of God at the moment in my life, you know, and so what do we do? We go and pray. Who knows? Yeah? You go pray. And we pray and we pray. And that doesn't work, so we go try something else. Then we go to a conference. Then we go, uh, you know, conferences are wonderful and they can help. And we do something. And what happens is we end up starting to beat ourselves up. Yeah? Why? It's like we're saying, his cross wasn't good enough, so I need to get on one myself. Because the enemy jumps on the lack of knowledge in the church. We perish for lack of knowledge. People don't understand something that the Bible is very clear about. And he jumps on it and causes guilt. We need cleansing. And that cleansing, as we'll look into the, the rest of today, is this. It's actually the word of God, the living voice, the spoken word. But he will primarily use this. See, Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ lost to love the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, the living voice, that's Rhema. Okay? That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So the beautification of the bride actually comes from the Lord speaking to you. You are the bride, even the men. Because the women have to be sons. So, because we're all sons of God, because we're in Christ. So, you can be a son, I can be a bride. That's great. But the beautification comes to the bride. The separation from the world, the making of the bride, comes through his voice in your life, which will primarily come through this. Now, it's, it's very important. So, Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's where everyone stops. You woo! Yippee! And it is cool. It's amazing. Grace is that strong. We just, we can enter into the most holy place. The veil has been torn and we have access whenever we want. That's true. It's just true. But I see so many people, you, you know, even your body, and I, I cannot get into this, but the Bible talks about instruments of righteousness. Even your body is a living, breathing mechanism to experience the presence of God. It is. And when they would go into the most holy place, that's God himself. There's the person of God, the presence, the power. So what happens, <laughs> actually, let me just read. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter by the, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which means there was an old and dead way. If there's a new and living way, there's an old and dead way. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about that. It calls the Old Testament the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Because it could not alter, it could not change, it could only point to the issue. So it needed to point to Christ because only he could change. Am I making sense? He says, in the new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We did this last week. Many people want to draw near to the Lord. The Bible says, if you draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. There's a, a desire to draw near to the Lord, and it's, I want to. And it's like sometimes things evade us. Or we pray, and it's like, you know, sometimes in the preacher, off it, out it goes. Or it's like you pray, but there's, there's just something missing. But it tells us how to do this. It's not a method. It's not a structure. Don't make a formula of it. It's just giving us insight. Because the physical tabernacle was built after something in heaven. And heaven's still there. Kind of a big deal. So it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What's that? 
That's, we've come through the cross, we're saved, we're no longer built to be sin conscious, to wake up with what I should not do. My conscience is clean because of the blood of Christ. So I get to draw near, I have access. That's speaking about the cross, that's the brazen altar. They would sprinkle everything with blood, it was really quite disgusting. If you look at it, there was blood everywhere. So they would sprinkle everything. Now we have a heart sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, which is alive in heaven, still now. And it says it speaks on your behalf as an advocate. It speaks for you. When you do something, oh, stamped, justified. It speaks for you. But then he says, in the drawing near, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. People say it's baptism. Friends, it's not. It's speaking to Hebrews. The book is Hebrews. In other words, they are Hebrews. They were Jewish people who were struggling to go from the Old Testament into the New. They were struggling to make the conversion, in a sense, to the New Testament. It's written, actually, to legalistic Christians, Hebrews. It's talking to people who understand that to draw near as a priest, they had to go through certain things. That, washed with pure water, is the water of the Word. It's Ephesians 5. The groom speaks. He sanctifies the bride with the washing of the word. And sometimes we just have to go and sit and read until he speaks and we're going to get into that. We just have to stay here. It recalibrates us. It's not about understanding everything. It's not about becoming a theologian. It's not about that. This is so powerful. When I first got saved, when God put a desire in my heart for this word, I, I remember I mean, I was, my mind was messed up. I was a drug addict. I mean, I was messed up. And I, I opened the Bible one day and I saw like light. I cannot explain it. Light. Like, you know when light behind a cloud, like a, what do they call that? A silver lining? That light that bursts forth behind a cloud. I saw light behind every black and white letter. And the Lord said in my heart, heaven's behind these words. It has such power. It's not about... Becoming the next, whoever your hero teacher is, the next John Stott. Or the, it's not about that. It's about, it does something to the heart. It just does. And it changes everything you do in the tent. The worship, the prayer, it just shifts everything. It just does. So, the word is the bronze laver. It's this thing you come to second. Why? It's a mirror. How was it made? It was women who gave mirrors that was something previously used for the purpose of beauty. They took mirrors from Egypt and they used that to make this bronze laver. It's the beautification of the bride. They were women. It's, it's kind of obvious, right? And what was in the basin? Water. Which is the word, the washing of the word. What did they see when they looked in there? Their reflection. Very, very important. Very important that as soon as they come, I'm going ahead of myself, as soon as they came from the cross, as soon as they came from the, the power of grace, justification, the heart changed, nature changed, they've just, they've got the blood, the very first thing they see is who they now are. That was the point. Now, it didn't happen for the old physical priests, but it's pointing to something. When you go to the Word, it's showing you who you actually are. It's not condemning you. It's the first thing I see. I go from the cross straight away into the Word. I go from there and I look. Oh, that's who I am. The first thing they would do was to see 
the change, the, the countenance shifted, everything, my hearts, oh, oh, I see it in here. Hello? It's first experience. So, grace teaches us holiness. Grace teaches us holiness. Titus 2, famous verse. And it's used always in a religious thing. You know, people run around doing something that they shouldn't or they're getting in trouble and they love the Lord, but they, you know, and then the person comes along, you know, they're 400 years old and they've, they've been around for a while and they say, well, you know, grace teaches us to say no to sin. And I'm like, yes, it does, but for goodness sake, it's a school. It's not a moment. I mean, it says here, Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that's the dust of the world. We should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age. That's here on earth. That's what it means by the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. See, without the perspective of eternity, it's part of the strength. Eternal perspective is part of what strengthens us to be different here. If you remove that, there's no strength to it. Glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, oh, purify, see? They used the word, the P word, like I did. That they might purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Hmm. Grace... What some people think is do whatever you want, which it actually can be in the beginning, actually does something where you become, your desires change, and what you desire is what he desires. And that's a process. I've said it a million times. To be free is not to do something, not do something because I know it's bad. Freedom is I'm not doing it because I no longer want to do it. There's a big difference. There's a major difference. And grace is the only thing that does that to a heart. And we have no, please hear me, there is no human on the earth who can release grace to you like that. None. None. Not one. It is an unearthly experience. It's experiencing the unconditional love of God looking forward, not back. We all experience that the love of God when we saved and we cleansed and, oh, who knows that experience, Right? Grace teaches us to understand that looking ahead. That's never going to change. That's what empowers you. See, the Lord gave me a parable. I'm going to speak to you a little parable. It's something that I wrote. You can close your eyes if you want to imagine in your head, but you don't have to. It's a parable of how grace works. There's a king who looks in his kingdom for a bride, but there is none to be seen. So in his search, he discovers that there was one foretold to be the love of his life. It was a child of royal birth from a neighboring kingdom, and she was stolen from that kingdom when she was a baby. So he leaves his throne. That's Jesus, just in case you missed that. He leaves his throne to seek her out and to win her heart. When he finds her, he pays the ransom that was demanded for her freedom. He desires to remind her of who she actually is in such a way that he can free her from thinking she was who her captors had convinced her she was. But it's all she's ever known. She was raised there. She grew up there. 
She never knew anything different. He doesn't do this because she is not good enough for him. Big point. But because she is actually of royal birth, she just never knew it. She was raised by the enemy, and his strategy was to convince her of terrible and destructive lies about herself and her heritage, so that even if she were rescued, she may never be comfortable with ruling, thereby removing the threat of her being rescued or not, of her being saved or not. She had never exercised her rights of authority that she had from birth. She was not aware of the potential trapped inside of her. How does the king remind her while he speaks to her? That's the bronze laver. That's the word. That's his voice. That's how he washes the bride. He speaks to her. He spends time with her. And even when he does, she snaps back at him, lashes out at him, accuses him of lying to her, that he's tricking her, because she's never trusted anyone before. But he knows this, and he is patient, because his love for her is genuine. But he knows the day will come when she will believe him and learn to live in the royal ways of her new kingdom, not the slave ways of her old one. Friends, that bride is you. Every one of you. Every one of us. That's what he's doing. Or, this has been some experience, they are stewards of the king. We can call them pastors, parents, teachers, whatever. They're stewards. They carry authority on his behalf. But they're not the king. But with a good heart, and they have good hearts. We all, I've hurt people, although I have not wanted to, but I have. With a good heart, we demand the change. The stewards demand the change before she knows that she is loved, before she knows she is rescued, and before she knows she is safe. Before she understands that what she has was given by birth and therefore cannot be taken away. They tell her that this is what the king expects of her, instead of how he feels about her. They don't tell her that. So this broken shell of a bride uses all of her might to become what she thinks is expected of her. At the cost of her joy, her beauty, and her health. So even when she tries to use the authority she is told that she has, no one listens. Because they know she doesn't really know what to do, and she doesn't actually know if the king will back up her edicts. That's what many Christians have experienced. Yet, the king wants you sanctified. The king still wants you holy. Why? You know, the word sanctify means to separate, yeah? You know what the word sanctified means? In state of proper use. You see, in a state of proper functioning, a pen, I've said this before, a pen sitting on my desk, I think C.S. Lewis said this, I could be wrong. A pen sitting on my desk is still a pen. It's like the lost coin. It's still a coin. The value for the coin has not changed. It's still a coin, but it's not adorning the bride unless it's with the other coins. A pen sitting on my desk is still a pen, but when I'm writing with it, the pen is sanctified as it's in its proper state of functioning. The sanctification process of God, the washing of the word, the beautifying of the bride, 
is not to make people better. We have to stop thinking like that. It's to separate her from an old slave master and actually place her into the state of proper functioning. That's actually who she is. And that will become more natural to her. It'll become normal. It'll become real life. He wants you sanctified because that is the state of who you actually are. Now, there's a secret. And I learned this many years ago. I did a, I don't want to call it a diet because that's just weird. But for five years, I committed myself to study this, the grace of God as a doctrine and nothing else. And I went on a journey. I got angry. I got happy. I got overjoyed. I got depressed. I, for five years, it was just, it was extreme. You know, everyone would go out at night and I would stay there pacing up and down in the hall, reading and, Lord, how does this? And I realized <laughs> a very basic truth that focusing on what's been accomplished at the cross is the process of washing us from the world. Focusing on what happened at the bronze laver is the process of the washing of the word. Why? Because it's the first thing that they saw. It's the first thing we get to see in the scripture is what's just happened to you. Even though a person's saved, they don't yet know what that means. They've experienced something, but they don't necessarily know everything that God has just done for you. Grace instructs our heart. Nothing else can. It's literally everywhere in the Bible when you start to understand that. We even read it in Hebrews 12. Pursue holiness. Don't move off grace. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, I, I wish I could go into it. Let me actually quickly do that. By the grace of God. See how it works? It's wonderful. You know, 1 Corinthians 5, we spoke about it last week, and I could feel people were uncomfortable. Well, you may get uncomfortable again, but we're, we're okay with that. There was a man in 1 Corinthians 5 sleeping, committing incest with his mother-in-law. They thought the way they were responding to him was so loving and perfect and gracious that they were actually shielding him from conviction. They were shielding him from freedom. So Paul says, no, you, you don't do that. Okay, and I won't get into that. But they had come under the deception of the prevailing spirit over the area. What happens is he speaks to them. It's very interesting. He does some separation thing. Then he says to them, listen, don't even sue one another. They were so at each other because he wanted to come in and still minister and prophesy. That's what was happening in the church. Everyone wants to prophesy. The Bible says that, 1 Corinthians 12. Everyone wants to give a word. Everyone, he wants to come in and minister and therefore transfer something to these people. And they were like, oh, we just love you. No, that's not helpful. So he says, don't even, you know, Gather the body of elders instead of going to the courts to sue each other. I cannot remember a time that that was actually done. We won't get into that. That's what the Bible says. Why did he say that? Because they were so lost in their, who they thought they were and what they thought it was to use godly wisdom to love the world with everything that they have because the value they have is the same value you have. they just not in the bride yet. But their value, the lost coin... The value is the same. To love them, yet stand for what they stand. And as the world does this, it's going to require not worldly wisdom on how to deal with that. The church uses that a lot. But supernatural godly wisdom on how we can love them, yet stand. Hello? So he says, don't go to the courts. Why did he say that? 
because they were so fighting amongst each other that he didn't want that fragrance coming out to the world and losing their testimony. He said, rather just be wronged, rather just be cheated. Literally what he says. Then he says this in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What power is he talking about? Not the courts. This is true. It's in the context. You can go study it at home. He's saying, the grace of God is so strong. Yeah, I can do whatever I want. And that's offensive to some. It is that strong. It just won't be a fun life. But it is that strong. He says, but... I refuse to be brought under the power of sin. Meaning what? Romans 6 calls sin like a person. Okay, let's pretend I was that. It's not a nice pretending, but it calls it your slave master. It's the one who kidnaps the bride. It's the one who raised the bride in the world. It's lied to her. And he says, the grace of God is that strong, but I was expensive. My value was high. I was expensive. Why would I use it to run back under the old slave master so I can be lied to, whipped, and beaten again? I don't sell so cheap. And neither do you. That's what he's saying. So he says, so focus on grace. Focus on what's been done. So that you don't come under the power of what you were freed from. Because it's always deceiving. It's always to destroy you. Always. I mean, it's literally everywhere. Romans 6 says the same thing. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as righteousness, as instruments to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Your old master shall not have power over you, shall not have dominion over you. By focusing on what? For you're not under law, but under grace. Same thing. Everywhere. It's in Hebrews 10. Romans 5, Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 10, the whole book of Galatians. Focus on what's been done. And you'll become what you see in the mirror. Hello? Am I making sense? Grace teaches, friends, it's a school. It's not a moment. It's a school. There are some people who have experienced and seen something of God and they desire just to please the Lord. God has changed their heart, but it came by the Spirit. And we forget sometimes what that was like. And we see a person who's running around doing some stuff and we're like, you, not, you know, you mustn't do that. Or grace teaches you to say, we were like that. But someone was gracious enough to allow that to happen and prayed for us that the Spirit of God would invade our heart. And the grace school actually begins to start. <laughs> It is the biblical way. You know who knew this? John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. He understood this. And grace, my fears relieved a great sentence. Friends, 1 Peter 1 says this, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. 
I'll summarize the, this whole section by saying this. Stop trying to change the fruit on the old tree. You have an old man, that's the person you were born under, the, the sin when you were born naturally. When you get saved, it's a whole new man. There's two root systems. Jesus said a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now I know that's in the context of false prophets. But we have to understand, I've, so, I tried this for years. You know when I said I stopped sinning in here? We approach the old tree, the old man, the, the bad parts, and we start trying to change the fruit. You will not change a tree producing fruit by polishing the fruit. It, it just doesn't work. Go try it in the natural world. You, you can clean it, you can polish it, you can... It's going to produce what comes from the roots. When you were saved, you were given a new tree. That's why it says, the seed that is in you is incorruptible. And it comes from what? The Word of God. So when you look in the mirror, something here reaches out to the incorruptible seed in here because it comes from here and they speak to one another. That's how it happens in the spirit realm. They're like, I know you. Yeah, I know you. Oh, okay. And it's like, we're reading. We don't, my Bible's upside down. We're reading. We don't even understand what's happening. It's taking that incorruptible seed and feeding those roots and ignoring the other one. That's what it does. We cannot change the fruit by dealing with leaves or fruit. We deal with the roots. We need to understand the grace of God, the goodness of God is so good that our roots go deep into Christ. They don't go into your old life. That's why the New Testament starts with a genealogy. Matthew 1 verse 1. That is your new genealogy. It's kind of a big deal. Because it, it changes everything. It, it really changes everything. Abiding in the law of liberty. I, uh, I'm just going to read this to you. And I'll just speak. James 1, 16 to 27. This is the fourth verse, the last verse. This verse I've heard been used for absolute to destroy people. And yet it actually means the opposite. Therefore lay aside all filthiness. That's Wash the hands and the feet. Lay aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. You know that word, that remains, that phrase, you know what it actually means in the, in the biblical dictionary of the Strongs, the Vines, all of them, it means this. The residue that remains in a believer from their state prior to the work of salvation. <laughs> saying, lay aside the old man. It's not saying be better. It's saying, operate from the right root system. Lay aside the old man. When it actually says lay aside, it's the same in Hebrews 12, I think it is, in Ephesians 4, it says put off the old man. Same, same Greek word. Put that off. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. You know that's not talking about salvation. He's writing to Christians scattered abroad in the book of James. It's able to save your souls, your mind, your emotions, your will, the stuff. You're saved, but you're broken and you're still thinking like the world because you were raised there from that liar, that horrible other steward or king or whatever. <laughs> so he says, receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word. That's this. You know that word able? Who knows the word dunamis, dynamite, explosive power? It's from that word. It's dunamai, which has the power to heal 
your psyche, the word soul is psyche. It's not salvation. <laughs> that word implanted is inborn. It's actually what it means. It's inborn. And it means, I think I wrote it down, that which exists from birth, meaning the new birth. Receive with humility, because we don't understand like we think we do. The inborn which exists from the new nature, from our new birth, receive that. And it has the power to heal your psyche, your soul. Changes you. <laughs> and people say, well, you better be better. Just stop doing all those things. It doesn't help. That's easy. You're doing wrong. We could stand here and point at each other all day. We would all be right. You know, I'm a prophet. You're wrong. Okay. <laughs> he says this. This is a bold move, but I'll just say it. I rewrote this with all the Greek words in our own vernacular, modern-day language. That first verse says this, Accept the gift of the word with humility, knowing that it contains the power to change your heart, your perspective, and your lens for life. It's designed to make you who you were born to be. That's what it reads more like that in the Greek. That's why I say read until he speaks to you. He's your groom. Read until the author brings something to life. And I think we'll stop there. The rest is actually the part I was excited about, but it's okay. We're okay. We have next week. You know when it says, if you look into the word, if you look into the mirror of the word, but walk away and don't do something, that doesn't mean we have to do everything that we read and become. No. Then we'd all be in serious trouble because we come here every week and we've heard a lot. It means when he jumps on something and brings you life, it says, if the learning to agree with that, that's the hard part. Learning to agree with a new way of thinking because he's changing something from what we were lied to. And he says, and when we don't do that, we can hear it all day, but when we walk away, it says we forget our natural face. You know that word natural? There's four Greek words for the word natural and naturally in the Bible. And all th there's three of them that are all adjectives, adverbs, and so forth. There's one that is a noun. And it's only used twice. Well, it's used twice in the book of James right there and one other time. It's the word Genesis. When it says your natural face, it's a noun. The face isn't the noun. The, the word natural is. And it's the word Genesis. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is Matthew 1, verse 1. And it, English says the word genealogy. It says, when you look into the mirror of the word, understand that it's telling you who you are now, the noun, your natural who. It tells you the word speaks to your new nature. It's not trying to fix the old one. It's telling you where your genealogy comes from. Friends, grace, it changes you changes you. It's the only thing that carries the life to change, to transform. And my desire is that you're free. Genuinely free. And I cannot put what God's spoken to me about on you. And you cannot do that to me. We have to allow people to walk with the Lord where they're at. And we can get into that next week. 1 Corinthians tells us all about that. Grace will eventually make you gracious. 
doesn't start like that. But you'll become gracious. 